This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas. And today I'm speaking with Lynn Hudson. Dr. Hudson is a professor of history at the University of Illinois at Chicago and is the author of the new book, West of Jim Crow, The Fight Against California's Color Line, which came out with the University of Illinois Press a couple years ago in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Lynn. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. On this show, we always like to begin by just hearing a little bit about the author themselves. So let's hear a bit about you. Tell us your background, a bit about yourself, and maybe how you became interested in history. Okay. Well, I am actually a Californian, uh, even though I have lived in Minnesota and now live in Chicago. And I became interested in history probably even in high school, I think, when I was going to high school, I had a great teacher, a great history teacher. And I remember getting very excited about, this this will date me, about using a microfiche and reading old copies of the LA Times about the Red Scare in Los Angeles. And that's probably one of the things that inspired me. I also was lucky enough to go to school in the era of uh, integration and was a part of the busing mandate in Pasadena, California. Pasadena was the first school district west of the Mississippi to be mandated to enforce Brown versus Board because the schools were still so segregated. So I was a part of that. And that meant that I had a much more, uh, a much more diverse education, that I had different classmates, that I had African-American teachers, and that the curriculum was also different than it would have been if this hadn't happened. So I learned more about race and Jim Crow and the kinds of uh, discrimination, anti-black violence that happened in the state. So that was a part of me being inspired to be a historian, but also, of course, it, it's a part of why I was inspired to write this book. Well, that was my next question, in fact, is what brought you to writing this book in particular? So it sounds like part of it was your own experiences in California and living through this era, correct? Yes. And I think, you know, I also was lucky enough to go to the University of California at Santa Cruz, where I had a class taught by Pedro Castillo on California history. And I remember thinking, huh, now that's funny. I'm a product of the public school system, but I hadn't learned any of this material. I hadn't learned anything about African Americans in California. And I was very surprised to learn about Mary Ellen Pleasant, the subject of my first book, who was the first black woman one of the first black women in the United States to go to court over basically not picking up black riders. So Jim Crowed transportation. So a hundred years before Rosa Parks, Mary Ellen Pleasant sued the North Beach and Mission Railway Company and initially won her case. So I remember thinking in that class, well, if I don't know about this and I've gone to public schools, you know, I remember making popsicle stick Uh, missions, you know, little models of missions (laughs) as part of my California history, Uh, I was struck by the kind of silence around African-American history in California. Now, of course, then graduate school happened and I did other things. I studied Southern history and African-American history um, 
and women's history in the South. But I kept coming back to this, you know, years later when it was time for me to think about what I wanted to specialize in. And that's, that took me back, in some ways, it took me back home to these questions that had initially sparked my interest. And this interest in this, the, the silence and absence of African-American history, and not just African-American history, but Native American history and Chicano history and women's history in my upbringing. So that, that was definitely an inspiration for this book. And you mentioned the idea of historical silences, and that's something we're going to come back to later. But many people might associate uh, Jim Crow primarily with the American South. People who know a bit about American history, if they think about Jim Crow, they probably think about it in that context. And as you said, there is this kind of silence surrounding Jim Crow elsewhere in the United States in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century. But as you say in the book, California was founded under, I believe the phrase you use is, under slavery's shadow. So... Let's go back in time to the 19th century, and I'm wondering if you can give a brief overview of anti-Black racism and of slavery in the state of California up to the Civil War. What are the, the roots of this story of Jim Crow in the West, in California? Well, a lo- you know, that's a great question. It has a lot of different kinds of answers. I'll, I'll try to not give you a 50-minute lecture on this, but, um, you know, a lot of this has to do with the founding of the state, right? And I think one of the things I discovered when I taught Western history uh, in California is that, you know, and outside of California, frankly, is that we love to embrace this idea that free states like California was, as opposed to slave states, right, states that entered the Union as free states, embraced abolition and embraced freedom. And so that was one of the founding myths of the state, that because it was a free state, it didn't have black codes or it didn't discriminate. So that's the first place we have to start is with this myth. And California, as many others besides me have documented, um, you know, Tomas Almaguer and Stacy Smith and others have written extensively about the roots of not only slavery, but also, uh, I mean, also discrimination against Native Americans, Chinese, and others in the state. So statehood includes, you know, the kinds of codes that we would call Jim Crow codes or black codes that prohibit African Americans and others, Native Americans included, from testifying in court against a white person. And California had that law on the books from statehood till 1863. So again, we think of California as this place that maybe is a home of, of, of abolitionism, right? And uh, a place where freedom reigns. So not, not only is that a myth if we look at the Constitution, but of course if we look at the violence and the racial violence that happens in the state in its first few decades, we see, of course, quite a different story. And again, others have documented this the violence against Native Americans uh, is infamous in the state. Uh, and you only have to look at studies like Kelly Lytle Hernandez's study of the prison system in Los Angeles to see how that begins, to see how this incarceration of people of color begins and racial violence. And of course, you know, the anti-Chinese movement. It's headquartered in San Francisco. So we see a, a very, very... Uh, vivid depictions of this racial violence in many historical studies. There's also a study of lynching in California that shows that while if if you look at the numbers of African Americans lynched on, say, the maps that were produced by the NAACP, it could look like California is a place where that doesn't happen. But with this new research, we see that, in fact, if you include the lynchings of Native Americans, Chinese Americans, and others, California was, in fact, a place where lynching happened on a significant scale, right? And this is a great, you know, the question you're asking is so important because I find this time and time again with my students that they say, well, you know, these, these are just Southern things. This, this doesn't happen in Chicago, or this didn't happen in the Midwest, or this doesn't happen in the West. And we still hold on to those, I think. So that, that is an important part of this 
was of this project, which is trying to, as I said, debunk some of those myths. So California has this deep racist history, but what about the history of Jim Crow specifically? Maybe we can, we can start by just defining that term in case any of our yes. listeners are, yes. are unfamiliar with it. And then I'm curious what sorts of Jim Crow restrictions existed in the state in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War during Reconstruction? Yeah, good question. Well, you know, it's kind. It's a. It's a term Jim Crow that is always being redefined and used in different ways. So it's. Uh, it wouldn't be unusual for folks to use this term to just be a stand-in for the word segregation, right? So we we sometimes talk about Jim Crowed spaces, right? Segregated spaces, but usually when we're using that term, we're referring to this era after Reconstruction, when these the infamous. Jim Crow laws um, are enacted and the policies of reconstruction, the civil rights policies and laws have been turned back and we're looking at the the era of lynching. So we're usually talking about, you know, post-reconstruction, 1870s, 18, you know, into the early 20th century. However, you know, if you look at some of the recent literature, the new Jim Crow, Right, by Michelle Alexander and other texts, you can see that we're also using the term to talk about anti-black racism, violence directed at African Americans, not just segregation. And that we're also using the term sometimes in ways that mean that it isn't just this 40 or 50 year period, that the era of Jim Crow continues on until today. So it is a bit confusing. It is, a, you know, people can play kind of fast and loose with this term. Um, Strictly speaking, historians think of it as that period at the end of the 19th century, early 20th. But again, uh, you know, it depends on who who's who's using the term, right? What was the rest of the questions? That's okay. It, it was it was a long question. The second half of the question was um, so now that we've kind of defined Jim Crow, we have an idea of what we're talking about. How does it manifest in California? Yeah. What kinds of restrictions mm-hmm. existed in the state uh, in the years immediately after the Civil War? So we talked about the anti-testimony law. That was a you know obvious Jim Crow law, uh, but there were also Jim Crow laws that uh, or practices that don't look like maybe what we would define as obviously or, or, or see as Jim Crow code. So for example, the foreign miners tax right, that taxed, especially of course, Chinese miners in different ways and black miners, in some ways that could be seen as a Jim Crow law that originated in the gold rush before the classic era of Jim Crow. Now, there are also of course, many Jim Crow practices, practices outside the law that were discriminatory against people of color and African-Americans in particular. So one of the things I write about in my book is, are the ways in which African-Americans in the state had hoped that they could vote freely, as men, of course, African-American men, but they found them, themselves ridiculed uh, and dismissed by the Republicans. Now, this isn't of course, on a scale uh, that Southern men would be experiencing. But, but black men did experience discriminatory policies and of course, so did black women. Black, the, the case that I talked about earlier when Mary Ellen Pleasant sued a streetcar company, she sued them for not picking her up, but she also documented, as did other black women in San Francisco, of uh, they documented the abusive behavior that they were experiencing on streetcars by drivers, especially, and other passengers. So they might be picked up at the streetcar stop, but then they might be uh, pushed off the train, the streetcar, sorry, or they might be, you know, discriminatory language or, right, epithets. Obviously, there are all kinds of Jim Crow restrictions in the job market in California. So... African-Americans could not expect to get the jobs, of course, that white Californians did. Um, Of course, neither could Chinese Californians. So there was very few opportunities for employment for African-American men and women. 
women for the most part were restricted to domestic jobs. And again, we don't maybe think of that as uh, a Jim, it's not a Jim Crow law, but it is a Jim Crow practice. So there are all kinds of ways that African Americans experience discrimination in the state that again are outside the law. They certainly were not invited to participate, for example, in speculation and the kinds of investments that are going on, even if they had the wealth. So one of the things we find out about Mary Ellen Pleasant with that it, is that she made quite a bit of money investing in gold and silver, but she was, of course, worried that that would become, that she would be targeted because of this. Right? African-American women aren't supposed to be entrepreneurs and certainly not supposed to be wealthy property owners. So she often hid her wealth in different ways so that she, it couldn't be traced back to her. She would not, for example, um, let it be known that she owned the property, the very expensive property near not, um, it's in San Francisco, near in, in the Western Edition, where one of her mansions were. And so she, she also disguised her investments probably in different ways by disguising them, by using other you know, men's names and things like that. So, so I guess, I guess your, the answer to your question is that if we want to look at how Jim Crow operated in 19th century California, we could look at the law, and there are plenty of examples of Jim Crow restrictions, but we also need to make sure and look at all these other ways that African Americans were discriminated against that are outside the law. This is a perfect a perfect example of the kind of thing that I tell my students a lot where, you know, the sources that you're looking at matter. And if right. you're just looking at the kind of government sources and law books and things like that, these very traditional sources, you're going to miss a whole lot of the lived experience for black Americans in California and the way that Jim Crow manifested and all these other ways that weren't necessarily, as you're saying, written down in law books in, right. in the in, in legality. Yeah, right. right. I mean, luck, we're lucky that in California there were for a time. Um, in the 19th century, there were two black newspapers. So it's a, it's a rich source for all mm -hmm. of us because it reports on these things, these, these newspapers, right? The Elevator, Mirror of the Times was very short-lived, but the Elevator was reporting on these kinds of questions and issues. So we're very lucky to have that source. <sighs> One of the important waypoints in the story that you tell, one of the, the, the kind of big years in the book, um, is, is 1915. And in 1915, two things happened that were pivotal for both California and for African Americans nationwide. What were these two events, and how were they connected? Well, thank you. That is, that's a fun question. Um, I was surprised to find out that the film The Birth of a Nation showed during the Panama Pacific International Exposition. Now, I knew that the film had come out, but I guess when I was writing this book, I, I hadn't really made the connection between the two events. And it was only through the journalism of black, the black journalist Delilah Beasley that I realized how much the overlap of these two events mattered for black Californians. Because not only were, were they protesting the showing of the birth of a nation, like so many African Americans were around the country, but they also were protesting the Jim Crow aspects of this World's Fair. And so her journalism exposed both of these things. And she was, she was in, in many ways, she was a fascinating character um, and someone that I, I think really needs to get her due. She was a regular columnist for the black newspaper, but also for the White Daily, um, the Oakland Tribune. And she, she embraced the possibilities of the World's Fair, that it could do these things, it could highlight black achievement. At the same time that it was very clear that African Americans weren't getting hired at the fair, and they were really uh, also, they, of course, they were depicted in a very derogatory, overtly stereotypical ways. So the fair is this fascinating place where you can see these possibilities for uh, African-American participation, but it's also a place where scientific racism is on display. 
And of course, The Birth of a Nation is this film that celebrates the birth of the Ku Klux Klan and is, you know, of course, most of your listeners know um, this epic film that depicts the horrors and mistakes of Reconstruction and shows African-Americans, you know, the new congressman eating watermelon, putting their feet up on the desk, unable to pass any laws. Uh, I, of course, many people listening that are teachers will have shown bits of this film in their classes because it is such a graphic depiction of, of the fears that uh, segregationists and white supremacists had about Reconstruction and about African-American citizenship and, of course, interracial contact and interracial sex and marriage. So, I mean, there's many, many things about the film that um, are problematic. But I guess, you know, there's been scholarship on, on the protest movements against Birth of a Nation. And Al Broussard wrote about this in his book, Black San Francisco. And that was one of the things that inspired me to look into this more, was to... I was thinking, well, okay, these things are going on at the same time. How does that matter, right? Does it matter? Did people point this out? And yes, it did matter. And Delilah Beasley wrote about uh, both of these things extensively in her columns. So, um, yeah, that was a, that was a fascinating story about about that one year. I love uh, reading about and teaching about and just kind of learning about in general the, the various world's fairs of the late 19th and early 20th century. They're these really amazing windows into, um, you know, all, everything that's going on in the United States and in the world at that time, both for good and for ill. So I was really pleased to see the, uh, the, the, the I forget what it's called, the Pacific Panama um, ex- exhibition um, appearing in your book. I, I was glad to, to learn more about that one in particular. Yeah, I loved writing about it. I loved learning about it. You know, most of the scholarship about it had been about um, there, there's been some scholarship about women at the fair, mm-hmm. but not about African Americans. Not very much about that. A lot, of course, mm-hmm. has been written about the architecture of the fair and you know how it changed San Francisco. And um, so, yeah, it was. It's a fascinating story. Some African Americans in California, um, really as elsewhere in the United States as well, but in California too, they sought to avoid the discrimination of Jim Crow by creating a separate space for themselves. Can you tell us a bit about uh, the story of black towns in California, specifically the Mm -hmm. town of Allensworth, California, and maybe describe the arc of that place? What becomes of this promise of an all-black California town in the 20th century? Yeah. Well, this is another example of how this is a topic in African American history that we teach all the time. You know, when we're talking about um, post-Civil War era, and we talk about the Exodusters, and some people might be familiar with Nell Painter's book about that. We talk about African Americans leaving the height of Jim Crow, leaving Southern places, and heading west, but west to places like Kansas, Oklahoma, even Tennessee. But rarely are the black towns of California a part of that chapter in the African-American history textbook, let's say. And again, that was fascinating to me because Allensworth was this thriving all-black town that was really got going around 1910. And for many decades, it was a place where there were black teachers, black librarians, black justice of the peace, a black postmaster, black hotel owners. So it was this safe space, this space that African-Americans created. And interestingly, you know, when we talk about the Exodusters, we're talking about people leaving, let's say, you know, Mississippi or Louisiana, let's say. And, you know, we understand that story. Okay, well, that was a place where there was Jim Crow and there was the Klan and people were getting away from that. So it makes sense that they would find these spaces in the Midwest or West, start places, towns like Nicodemus, Kansas, or Boley, Oklahoma. That makes sense. But the folks that started Allensworth were also leaving places that were Jim Crowed, but they were places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Oakland. So it helps us understand that Jim Crow was alive and well at the turn of the century and in the early 20th century, so much so that folks would feel the need to leave these towns and cities in California and 
start their own community. Now, the community, as I said, it was thriving for several decades. It was troubled from the beginning, though, because of the water supply. And initially, also, the railroad stopped there, and that meant that farmers, and there were dairy farmers in Allensworth initially, and, and folks who were growing vegetables and wanted to sell them on the market. So initially, that was, that was a great setup. The railroad was there. They could go to market, and that worked out well. They could ship their goods. But when the railroad left, didn't stop there anymore, and the water supply dried up, like many black towns, Allensworth struggled. And there's a wonderful set of oral histories with some of the earliest families that settled in Allensworth that the California Parks Department did when they turned Allensworth into a state park, which is what it is today. And in those interviews, I found all this evidence of you know, why people wanted to go there and the, and the, the hopefulness of this place for black Californians. The need, you know, why they felt the need to leave the towns they were from and, and what they hoped to be able to do. And it's very clear that Allensworth was going to be a model. It was not only going to provide safety um, for black Californians away from the discriminations and maybe even violence that they were experiencing, but it was also, for many of them, intended to be a model to show that African Americans, in fact, were able citizens, were able business people and intellectuals and reformers. So it was, for a time, this very, um, this hopeful kind of paradise. And it provided new kinds of opportunities, especially for women is one of the things I found. You know, the opportunities, as I said earlier, for in the 19th century for black women for employment, for example, was mostly a domestic employment. But in Allensworth, black women could be the teachers and they could be the librarians and the, uh, they, ran, they sat on the water board and the city council and they could be citizens in ways, remember this is before women had the right to vote, um, and they could be citizens in ways that they couldn't be in the towns they came from. So that was uh, a fascinating story. It's also, of course, a story of a town that in some ways uh, the founders, a story of, I should say, of, of a group of African Americans who were ripped off, right? Many of the interviewers say, uh, interviewees, sorry, say that, you know, we knew that we were sold this land and that our parents or grandparents were tricked and that the land did not have an adequate water supply. Later, even in the 60s, it's found that there's high levels of alkaline in the water and makes it dangerous. So it's not, the, the arc of the story is, is one that begins with this hopeful community um, that's, a, that's a haven from Jim Crow, but that in fact can't really survive without having connections to markets, right, and water supplies and water bureaus. And so it's not possible for them to continue to make a living, the settlers in, in this town. And many of them have to leave. And by World War II, it in some ways becomes kind of a very, it's a very diminished place and almost a kind of a ghost town by the 60s. So in the 70s, then, the Park Service through the efforts of a man named Ed Pope, um, who was a Park Service employee. And he rallies the troops to sort of say, hey, there are no historic sites in the state about African-American history. There are historic sites, monuments, museums, et cetera, that celebrate Chinese Californians, that's sites about Native Americans, sites about Russians. Californians, but not about African Americans. So it's it's also a, a wonderful story of saving this part of Black history. And though there's been some ups and downs, um, uh, there have been lawsuits around the surround about the surrounding dairy farms and uh, lots of some issues about maintaining the funding to restore the buildings. It's it's a wonderful site that I encourage everyone to visit because they've restored the town 
to what it looked like in the early years, in 1910, 1912. Um, and you can see the post office, hotels, boarding houses, a lot of residents, the schoolhouse. So you really get a sense of what this place was like when African Americans who were fleeing Jim Crow in California set up this all-black town. One of the most interesting and most uh, complicated stories that you tell in the book uh, takes place in San Jose in 1933 when a mob lynched two men. And the men who the mob lynched were white. But as you describe in the book, the this particular event, this lynching, nonetheless has a reverberating effect throughout California's black communities. Can you tell us about this lynching and about its long-term implications, why you included it in the book, what it tells us about the story that you're telling here? Sure. So I was surprised to find this. You know, when I was trying to decide what the chapters of this book would be, I wanted to document the ways that African Americans, of course, experienced Jim Crow. But I also wanted to document the role of African Americans in California in national movements to, that resisted Jim Crow. They're, they usually sort of fall off the map, right? When we talk about the anti-lynching movement, we usually talk about Ida B. Wells, who's a well-known anti-lynching advocate and a, from Tennessee, but then a Chicagoan. We talk about W.E.B. Du Bois, and we talk about the NAACP. And we usually tend to focus our discussions on the South and the East Coast. So I was very surprised to find that these, this lynching of these two white men in San Jose sent shockwaves, not only through the country, but across the world. And that, you know, everyone paid attention to the lynching of these white men. Now, not always because they cared about passing anti-lynching legislation. Um, one of the reasons this case got a lot of attention in the press was because it started with the kidnapping of uh, the son of a wealthy entrepreneur, and kidnapping was all over the news because of the Lindbergh case. So it initially, the interest in the case was to find the people who kidnapped this young man. And then the young man was found murdered in the San Francisco Bay. And so initially it was about that. But then when those men were found, the men who kidnapped this young man, uh, and they were taken to the jail, and then a mob broke in and lynched them. It then became a different sort of story, of course, about the use of lynching and mob violence. Now, that might have been the end of it, but the response on the part of the governor and others and, and, and the, the anti-lynching movement turned this into something that black Californians and African-Americans across the country could use to show the dangers of a country that had no anti-lynching laws, where lynchings could just happen and nothing, there was no ramifications, there was no consequences. So the governor initially praised the lynchers um, and Governor Rolf, uh, would forever be remembered for saying that he, f he wanted to free all prisoners, anyone in San Quentin who was a lyncher and, you know, congratulate them and comments like that. So this helped, again, keep the story in the news. What African-Americans knew and their colleagues and allies who, were, who had been fighting for decades to stop this practice and to get some anti-lynching laws through Congress, what they had known for... for decades, was that this practice, though famously used on African Americans, could and would also be used on white people. And that was part of what the NAACP and the local African American anti-lynching communities in California used. They used this argument to try to convince people, convince the American public that this needed to be stopped. And no, they were never no, they were never successful in getting legislation passed, but they were successful in drawing attention to the dangers 
of this practice and the, the inhumanity of it, the savagery, the kind of dangers of mob violence. So Delilah Beasley, as I mentioned earlier, was a part of this anti-lynching movement. All of the branches of the NAACP, there were branches by then up and down California. Um, they all organized against this practice and gave interviews and wrote to the national headquarters about it. And in some ways, I mean, again, it's hard to say how successful they were. They weren't successful in terms of a national legislation, but I think they were successful in drawing attention to the fact that this was a pervasive practice still. People had sort of thought that the height of lynching, that era was over. The numbers had dipped down in the 1920s. And people had sort of thought, okay, well, that's, that's over now. But this was 1933. And so I think it was, they used this lynching successfully to draw attention to this practice and to mobilize Americans against the practice. So there were some changes. Um, but again, these things are hard to measure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And another element of Jim Crow and of American racism that some people might, again, primarily associate with the American South is the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, which, as you say in the book, uh, was powerful in California. And in particular, it was very closely tied, very closely associated with California's law enforcement uh, in, the, in the state at, at around mid-century. Can you tell us a bit about the history of the Klan in California and how it came to wield such power and, and kind of institute such terror by the 1940s? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this again is a story about California being left off the map in the Jim Crow landscape. Of course, we know that uh, the Klan is associated with the South and that the first Klan uh, worked, of course, uh, to stop African-American citizenship and to punish or kill African-Americans who were uh, practicing their rights to vote or successful at business um, or engaging in interracial relationships. And I think some Americans also know about the second Klan that was powerful in the Midwest, especially. Uh, many people might have heard about Indiana Klan, let's say, or Ohio. But rarely does this Western Klan show its face uh, in terms of kind of a, an understanding of the history of the Ku Klux Klan. The California Klan organized, the Klan came to California in the 1920s, and the local branch of the NAACP, the LA branch, I should say, uh, immediately was alerted to the fact. This partly had had to do, again, with the strength of the black press in California. Charlotta Bass's newspaper, the California Eagle, was first on the scene to report this. The local branch of the NAACP immediately wrote to the national headquarters to say, you know, the Klan has arrived. We want all your information about how people fight, you know, how to fight the Klan and what's been done in other communities. But it, the clan, and the Klan, you know, start, immediately begins to uh, recruit members. They use the showing of the birth of the nation as recruitment tool and successfully recruit members up and down the state. But it isn't really until the post-World War II era that we see the Klan and we see their public face um, and we see the, the ways in which they go after African Americans it becomes more obvious. Um, now, you know, they're marching in the 20s and they are targeting not just African-Americans, but also Mexican-Americans and other immigrants. They're concerned with gender and women staying in the appropriate gender roles. We see all that in, in California. But after, during the Great Migration, 
the Klan would have a new focus, and that would be the African-Americans who are coming into the state, and especially those who are moving into what, what had previously been all-white neighborhoods. So in my book, I write about a particular case where a family moves to a white neighborhood in Fontana, east of L.A., and they are immediately visited by Klan members, some of whom are in law enforcement, and tell them they have to leave. Now, one of the things that that the family does, O'Day Short is the man's name, is that he immediately goes to the black press and he alerts them to this. He also informs the FBI. So we have records about this because the black press followed the case and organized with others um, rallies and after, after that, I should say first that um, there's an arson attempt that is successful at his home when he doesn't move from the white neighborhood. And the entire family, the man, woman, and two children, die from burns. So they are all murdered. And the story of the shorts tells us something about how strongly this, this third, what some people call third clan, um, and, and how successful they are at targeting black homeowners. They also target black vets, and um, they burn crosses on people's lawns. They, you know, attack people physically. And again, this—it it, doesn't—it isn't something we really usually think about when we're telling the story either of the history of the Klan or of the history of Jim Crow in the West. Again, I think it's partly because we don't associate the Klan with the mid 20th century, and we don't associate it with. California or the West, um, but they were practicing, they were marching, they were recruiting throughout the state in this period. So yes, that was, that was, I thought that was an important story to tell. And in the, the, the kind of nationwide story of Jim Crow and of the long struggle over civil rights, it's often public spaces, and in particular, public spaces that are connected or associated in some way with bodies that are often at the front line of battles over Jim Crow and justice. I'm thinking about places like restrooms and drinking fountains, for instance. And in California, especially in Southern California, this battle is uh, waged over swimming pools, public swimming pools in particular. So can you tell us a bit about how a fight over public swimming facilities helps to dismantle the state's color line in the second half of the 20th century? Yeah. Well, first I should say that I don't think that the pool battle that I document in my last chapter in my book helps dismantle the color line in some ways. In some ways, I think the story, the fight over the segregated pool in Pasadena shows us how tenacious that color line is. So that's an interesting issue right there um, is sort of how much how many how successful were these fights against segregated pools and beaches so what first of all I love your question too about kind of why do bodies matter you know we we know that for example when trains are segregated and streetcars that one of the things that segregationists argue even if they don't argue it explicitly is that they're trying to keep they're trying to prevent interracial contact right? and of course a part of that is they are also trying to prevent what was then called in the 19th century miscegenation right interracial marriage interracial sex now Pools are tricky, and beaches, right? Because especially, right, pools, the customers go into public pools and use dressing rooms and are naked, maybe, changing and using bathing suits and, right, but wearing bathing suits. Some, I said using bathing suits because sometimes, actually, the, some of these public pools rent bathing suits. Um, and then they're, of course, swimming together in water. And this was very alarming for segregationists or white supremacists who, who are concerned about this interracial contact. And that's one of the reasons why, even though we don't usually discuss this, recreational segregation was a huge part of maintaining white supremacy. We think, of course, first about transportation, about trains, right? We, we might think about the story I just told about housing segregation, something that was very successful. Uh, in California, restrictive covenants and real estate practices that try to keep neighborhoods white. 
but actually restricting and segregating recreational facilities was just as important for segregationists. And that's what the story of the Pasadena pool taught me, was that segregationists in Southern California really worked hard to keep those pools across the state, not just Southern California, but that's the focus of my chapter, um, to keep them all white. Um, now, this, the battle to keep the pools white was going on, that went on in Los Angeles. Black women led the fight to desegregate the parks pools in Los Angeles. It's sometimes called the bathhouse battle. And they were successful in um, getting some of those parks and rec pools desegregated in the 30s. But the, Cal the Pasadena story shows us how tenacious those segregationists could be. Because the pool opened in 1914, and from the very beginning, it was a white-only pool, and African Americans were told they could swim one day a week. The public was told that after what they were initially called Negro Day, they would drain the pool so that the white patrons the next day would not have to swim in the same water. And that tells you so much about the kind of eugenicist beliefs underneath this kind of segregation, right? That black bodies were dirty, unclean, unhygienic, and that white customers shouldn't swim in that water. Now, as many of you probably could guess, that would be very expensive to drain the pool every week, once a week, and they probably didn't do it. But the fact that they wanted to assure white patrons that they did, again, speaks volumes about the fears associated with interracial mixing in water and at public pools and beaches. Now, Pasadena's African-Americans organized immediately to fight the city practice, the city policy that said that black people could swim only one day a week. That Negro Day became International Day by the 30s because Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Mexican Americans also could not swim in the pool. They had to only swim on that one day a week. So what we see is uh, the initial fight is organized by an African-American group called the Negro Taxpayers and Voters Association. But they had little success fighting the city. The city said, listen, the city's lawyers, look, African-Americans make up only this percentage of the city, right, way below 10%, but you're getting a whole day. So really, you know, this is fair. Uh, and, of course, they had a lot of legal precedent, right? They could fall back on Plessy versus Ferguson. So we see, though, that African-Americans rally to fight this segregated pool, again, in the 1930s and the 1940s. And then by the 40s, African-American women that are running the local branch of the NAACP um, are successful in suing the city and getting that policy reversed. But when you initially asked me the question about sort of pushing back the color line or turning it over, or, um, in fact, what we find out is that the city chose, after this successful lawsuit on the part of the NAACP, to just close the pool. And they let it languish and basically become a, a mess. Um, and then reopened the pool, it was private. And you had to pay to go in later. And um, that is a technique that's used across the country in recreational settings. You might think about sort of golf courses um, or amusement parks, places like that, that um, public parks may be where part of it becomes private. Just the pool, say, for example. So this is a technique that, of course, is used to keep segregation operational. And uh, many people in the NAACP, even in the late 20th century, you know, they, they praised their forefathers and foremothers that came before them and fought this pool battle in Pasadena for 40 years. But I don't think they would argue that it ended up sort of eliminating segregation in the city that by any means. And that's that's an important point that you make and, and kind of gets me to my my last question about the story that you tell in this book, which is what happens next? So in some ways, this pool battle 
start something. But as you say, this is also, you know, it doesn't end the color line in California. So over the course of the remainder of the 20th century, what happens to Jim Crow restrictions of all kinds? And then kind of in a, in a broader sense, why is there this silence over the, the, the history that you tell? Why is it that California often gets left off the map of places with Jim Crow restrictions? Okay. Wow. Two big questions. That's a big question. I know. Two, two I should, big should... <laughs> Let me start with the first yeah. one, Steve. Okay. Okay. So what happens? Well, it depends on what era, area of Jim Crow that we're looking at, right? So if we're looking at recreation, like I said, one thing that happens is things are privatized, right? If we're talking about schools, one thing that happens is that, of course, there's white flight in California and many white parents pull their children out of integrated schools and send them to private school. So schools, of course, continue to be segregated in different ways, right? Um, The Klan, for example, goes sort of underground, even though they are organizing against Brown versus Board of Education after 1954, they will oftentimes white supremacists that might have been in the Klan would not call themselves Klan members. They might join something like a citizens council or a real estate board and still work to keep segregation, but under a different guise with a new look, right? Maybe a more civilized, less violent look. So we don't see it disappearing. We see it morphing and changing. We see, of course, the advent of the prison industrial complex and the astonishing numbers of people of color that are being put in prison, right? That's why that book is called The New Jim Crow, right? So we see that happening. I mean, so I think we can, we can look in different areas of public life and private life in, in California and see the ways that Jim Crow kind of morphs into something else. And, and partly it has to do with, again, the ways that segregated institutions can become privatized, Um, and the ways that folks self-isolate, right? White flight means that the schools that are left, the pupils left in inner cities are people of color, the tax base disappears, and then they're offered inferior segregated educations in some cases. Um, So, but again, it's a complicated story. And, you know, my, uh, I'm not a scholar of contemporary American history, so um, I can't really speak to the kinds of things that are happening right now, but I think those examples give, give people a sense of kind of where it goes. Now, what about the silence, you asked me? Kind of why, why don't we know about this? Well, you know, I guess, you know, I don't always, I, I don't always have an explanation for that question. I think it has to do with, first of all, it has to do with national curriculum, right? That um, the West is just not a part of the story we tell about the civil rights movement. So these organizers that I'm talking about, these African-Americans in, in California who fight lynching, who fight segregated pools and beaches, who fight, you know, they're really, they're not mentioned in the national narrative. They're never, they're never in that story. And it's, it's just partly, I think, has to do with the way we write history for a broad audience, right? If you think about a textbook, we're just going to see, you know, African-American history uh, in the slavery section. Well, okay, African-Americans are enslaved in the West, in Texas, in huge numbers, but that chapter doesn't usually focus on those folks. It focuses on Southern slavery. And then we get to civil rights chapter in a textbook. Again, we don't focus on Western history. So partly it has to do with just the way I think we reduce the national story to these well-worn, understandable kind of stories that are sound bites that we understand that can fit in a big story about the U.S. So I think it's partly to do with that. It's this, this sort of, again, leaving the West off when we talk about African-American history. And again, when we do talk about Western African-American history in the past, it, it was often a sort of celebratory, there were black cowboys. Now, that's not because scholars weren't giving us a much more critical, in-depth view of 
black Western history. I mentioned Albert Broussard's book, Black San Francisco, the work of Quintard Taylor, the work of Stacey Smith and others who've been documenting complicated stories of African, African American history in the West. But again, it, th those don't often make it into grade school curriculum or even college, even college. Um, and I guess another reason there's a silence around these issues is that as we've, as we've seen <laughs> quite recently, now, histories of white supremacy are suppressed for political reasons. Books are banned. Teachers are taken to task sometimes for raising difficult subjects. So some of this is political. I think there's certainly a, a backlash against histories of white supremacy. And um, that happens, of course, across the country. It's not, it, it happens everywhere. Um, so I think that's also part of it. And as we begin to to wrap up here, I always like getting my guests to kind of put themselves in the shoes of one of their readers, um, maybe thinking back on having read this book a year ago or two or three years ago. And I'm wondering what you would hope that that reader would come away from this book understanding. What do you hope that they remember or take away from this book, um, remembering it further on down the line? That's a great question. Well, I hope that readers remember that anti-black racism Jim, and what we call Jim Crow, all the things that that term means, um, is a national phenomenon. It happened even in the place that is today celebrated as quote unquote liberal bastion. Jim Crow happened there, lynching happened there, the Klan organized there. Um, because I think it's really important to understand that system of segregation and the history of white supremacy as being a national project. It's only then that we can understand what happens today with the white supremacists organizing today. So I hope that's a takeaway. But I also hope that a takeaway from this book is the success of the resistance to Jim Crow and white supremacy. That this is also a book about how homebuyers resisted white supremacy and their allies. It's not just a story about African-Americans resisting lynching. It's a story about uh, many, many Americans resisting lynching and joining the anti-lynching movement. It's a story of Mexican-Americans, Japanese-Americans, and African-Americans fighting segregation at pools and beaches. So. I hope that it also provides readers with a kind of a message that is hopeful, that, um, that there have been cross-racial, cross-ethnic, cross-class alliances in California, but across the country, that have resisted discriminatory policies, racial terror, racial violence, and found ways to um, make this country and the state democratic and live up to its democratic promise. And then finally, uh, this book has been out for a couple years. Um, came out in 2020. It's one of those pandemic baby books, yeah. right? Um, well, well done in that regard, getting it out in the midst of, of the early days of COVID. Um, I, I, I'm sure it was. Um, but, you know, it's an accomplishment to put a book out yeah. under those circumstances. So, um, yeah. you know, I hope there's some pride there as well. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, you know, that was, you know, the, the book came out about two years ago. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you've been working on in the interim. Can we get a preview of of whatever your next project might be? Sure. Well, um, I thought when I was writing this, when I was writing this book, I went to the NAACP papers to look at the papers at the Library of Congress. And I was struck by how many pool cases that they fought across the country. Now, Pasadena was, um, the national office advised the local branch in Pasadena about their pool case. And there was lots of correspondence between Thurgood Marshall and Pasadena's about their case, which I found thrilling. Um, but I was struck by how many pool cases that the NAACP took on. And I feel like that's a story that needs more attention. So my next project, I'll be looking at cases, not just that the NAACP fought, but cases where African-Americans were integrating swimming places, so beaches and pools, and the kinds of resistance that they met. So 
the violence that they met, but also the different ways that segregation was enforced. So it gets to your question about what happens to how our places, um, how is segregation continue to operate. So the pool project will allow me to look at that and to see both the complicated ways that segregationists maintain segregation in these spaces, but also the creative ways that African-Americans and their allies resisted this particular kind of segregation. And again, because it's about bodies and a lot of the arguments for segregation have to do with eugenicist arguments, I'm really interested in that, in the way scientific racism was used to maintain segregation in the United States. So I'll be looking at different sites of segregation and also this, this interesting idea about sort of water right, why water is such a dangerous place and these bodies in water. So that's my next project. Dr. Lynn Hudson is a professor of history at the University of Illinois at Chicago and is the author of West of Jim Crow, The Fight Against California's Color Line, which came out with the University of Illinois Press in 2020. Thank you for speaking with me today, Lynn. Thank you. It's been great. Really appreciate it.